everyone. Welcome to Scraps. I'm Jojo Platt, here with my co-host, Arun Sridhar. Our guest today is a special innovator, someone who trained with and alongside some of the giants in the field of neuromodulation, and he's gone on to become a giant himself. He has seen neural technology evolve from a fringe field to a mainstream class of therapeutics. His research has touched directly or indirectly almost every single neuromodulation target on the market. Sometimes it's unclear if he's an engineer, a biologist, or simply a genius. And I will say this, there is no better person to teach and to explain a complex topic than our guest today. This is why he's held in such high esteem by um, his colleagues, all the way from uh, his undergrad trainees to established scientists. The manner, the demeanor, the absolute reticence, the choice of words are as much as a part of him as what he comes out to say or to teach. Above all, he's beloved by all of his trainees and colleagues who know him to be tough but fair, bold yet realistic, factful yet opinionated, and takes down stupid with military precision. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm proud to have worked with him for the last eight years and have had numerous interactions with him. And I'm proud to call him a fantastic colleague and friend. Please welcome Professor Warren Grill to Scraps. Thanks so much, Jojo and Arun. So Arun, how do you know Warren? I have known Warren um, since I've been part of the GSK Bioelectronics effort where the two of us have actually worked together um, the, via research collaboration, where I've known him, his lab members, and we've had many um, conversations about the project that we've worked on. Dr. Girl, if you could walk us through a little bit about um, the focus of your lab and, and where your work is, is going today and tomorrow. Yeah, when I have a conversation uh, with people over Thanksgiving dinner, I describe what we do as pacemakers for the nervous system. So the concept is very much like a cardiac pacemaker, except you put the electrode into the brain or adjacent to a peripheral nerve or near the spinal cord and deliver electrical stimulation, not to cause the heart to contract as a cardiac pacemaker would, but rather to generate activity in the nervous system. And that activity subsequently can be used to treat diseases like epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, chronic pain, or restore function following disease or injury. So reanimate movement, for example, in someone with spinal cord injury. And our focus within, within our lab is really on moving things from understanding fundamental mechanisms and the interaction of stimulation with those mechanisms to human feasibility. And we, we have a little phrase that we kind of live by, and that is, from understanding comes innovation. That is, if we can understand how stimulation is interacting with the nervous system and subsequently the physiology, then we can come up with innovative ways to use it to treat diseases or disorders. And, and let me actually take the liberty to say this about you, which you did not say about yourself, Warren, that speaks to how humble you are, that you are, in my opinion, the most widely known neuromodulation engineer um, in, in the field today. And it has been since I've known you. 
And I think it, what you do and what you just explained um, is 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 underpinned by the deep passion for the science that you that you just outlined. Um, and I think there is always this this kind of uh, burning question when uh, we talk about war and grill. Are you a biologist who uses engineering methodologies or are you an engineer who uses biology as, as a test case? Which one are you, Warren? I'm an engineer. Uh, and the reason I say that, Arun, is that I think the fundamental, fundamental of an engineer is to solve problems. That's what we do. And we try to equip our students with the tools to solve problems. And the problems that we're most interested in solving happen to be in biology. So we, we, turn, we put on our engineering hat and the system that we're working on is a biological system instead of a communication system or a transportation system. But the, what, what's really striking and what I try to emphasize, particularly to undergraduate students, is that the equations and the tools that we use to solve problems in biology and medicine are the same as those that are used in communication systems and transportation systems it's just that the letters in the equations mean something different in those three cases. That's that's great. So if we can actually take a journey through your your early days um, in in terms of your life as a student, Warren, and then walk through the process of where we are today, um, that would be fantastic because I think it it would be a fantastic source of of inspiration to understand how your experiences shaped your outlook, um, both as, as a student and, and then over to you as a faculty in, in academia. Um, so tell us a bit about your, your family, your childhood, and what spurred, was there anything there that spurred your interest in science or was it, was it very different and it was science was something, science and engineering was something that came to you a lot later in life? Yes, so um, my father was an engineer. He was a, a mechanical engineer who primarily worked in construction. But I think his impact on my interest was more driven by the projects that we would do around the house. He was kind of fearless and would take on any kind of a project. For example, we once knocked out a whole wall and installed a fireplace. And I said, well, how do you know how to do this? And he said, I, I really don't, but I think we can figure out as we go along. Uh, and, and I think that that fearlessness is a, is a really important characteristic for people that are interested in, in doing innovation because you, you don't quite know how things are going to turn out along the way. So I think those, those early experiences probably influenced my interest in engineering. One really transformative experience was a course that I took in high school called Systems Physiology. And it was taught by a woman named Barbara Snyder. And we went through all the systems of the body. And as we did so, we dissected uh, cats. So they had these fixed cats in a cabinet at the back of the classroom. It smelled absolutely terrible in there. And by the end of the semester, these specimens were, were really disastrous. But it gave you an opportunity to really understand how things were connected and touch and feel and see, not just listen to or look at in a book. And that, and it was taught from a systems perspective, which is, which in my view is a, is a big part of engineering. And so that had a really profound effect on me as well. 
Yeah. I should have started out, however, yeah. by maybe saying that, you know, I, I ended up here largely by accident, not by design. <laughs> it's very unengineering like. <laughs> that is hard to believe, Warren. But go on. We're listening. Yeah. A, a number of happy accidents. And so, so that combination of you know my father being an engineer in the systems physiology class, it, it sparked my interest in biomedical engineering, but I didn't I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know that it existed. I just had this sense for what I wanted to do. And I happened to go to an information session where universities come and visit high schools. And this information session was by an admissions officer at Boston University. And one of the things she talked about was biomedical engineering, because they were one of the few universities at the time, this is 1988, who, no, excuse me, this is 1984, uh, one of the few universities in the country that had a solid undergraduate program in biomedical engineering. And as she talked about it, it really resonated with me as that's what I want to do. I just didn't know what it was called before then. And I ended up going to Boston University as an undergraduate to study biomedical engineering. And when I went there, I had a vision in my head of graduating and getting a job, probably working for Johnson & Johnson, because I grew up in New Jersey and Johnson & Johnson has various facilities on every corner in the state. And so you, you, it was just a natural thought. And uh, I, I, I was always into cars and I wanted to be able to get a good job so that I could buy a BMW. That literally was my thinking as I went to, as I went to school as an undergraduate. Uh, I think that was shaped a little bit by a, one of the best jobs I ever had, which was as a parking valet at a country club in New Jersey. And this was a fairly high end country club. So I got to drive a lot of really nice cars and that, that inspired my interest in getting a nice car. And still you didn't switch to automobile engineering in, in at BU? That, no, I, I didn't want to build them. I just wanted to drive them. So when did you achieve your, your BMW dream? I held on to that dream, Jojo, and I, I'll tell you, I can maybe uh, come back to that later. But my, my career choice was uh, dramatically altered by a fairly serendipitous occurrence. So... Uh, I didn't want to go home during the summer of my junior year of college. I wanted to do something else. Uh, and I applied for a fellowship at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute on Cape Cod because I thought, boy, this would be a really great place to spend the summer. And I got a call from one of the people there and she said, I'm really sorry to tell you, but we didn't uh, consider your application for this summer program. And I said, well, why not? She said, well, one of your references, uh, let me see, his name is Herb Voigt. He never submitted the letter of recommendation. And so I kind of threw up my arms in exasperation. I then promptly stomped over to uh, Professor Voigt's office. He was my undergraduate academic advisor, and I had taken signals and systems with him as a junior, and I had done well in that class. So I asked him to write this letter. And I, I was belligerent. You know, again, I grew up in New Jersey, so I kind of burst into his office and said, what are you doing? You didn't submit this letter. You screwed me. I have nothing to do this summer. And he literally was sitting behind a small mountain of papers. And he said, I'm really sorry. I'm sure it's here somewhere, kind of indicating this big, this big mountain of papers. And 
I, I think he sensed my level of frustration and he said, well, there's really not anything I can do for you this, at this time, except uh, I can give you a job working in my lab as a research assistant this summer. And as I said, I didn't really want to go home. I had no, really no other irons in the fire. And I said, sure, why not? I'll, I'll work in this guy's lab for the summer. And that experience uh, completely transformed my outlook. I saw that this guy had a great job. He could kind of do whatever he want, wanted. We got to build gadgets in the lab. Uh, he was always surrounded by all these young people, people really excited about the work they were doing. Uh, that experience that summer was, was the kind of seed that was planted that I wanted to be an academic uh, research professor and teacher. I, I think there's um, there's another interesting intersection that somebody put a little earworm in into the mix here. While at Boston, you also came across uh, a compatriot, perhaps a partner in crime, in in uh, Kit Parker. Yeah, you know, Kit was a was a classmate of mine uh, at BU, and one of the great things about biomedical engineering there was we were a relatively small number of students in our class. I think there were maybe 35 in my graduating class. And you spent an enormous amount of time together, so you really got to know one another quite well. And fortunately, I, I get to keep in touch with those people, including uh, Kit Parker. Uh, and we, we still commiserate to this day uh, about our experiences there, as well as our subsequent careers as professors. He's, he was very happy that you helped him out with this homework, <laughs> et cetera, Warren. The, the other important thing that happened there, Jojo, was that uh, I learned how to sail competitively. So I had, I had grown up sailing, but not particularly well. And uh, when I went to BU, they have a very successful collegiate sailing program. And uh, I got interested and involved in that collegiate sailing program. And as a result, uh, I became quite good friends with a guy named PJ Schaefer, who was also, a, he was a mechanical engineer, and ha we happened to live on the same dorm floor our freshman year. And PJ grew up and sailed in Cleveland, Ohio. And late in that junior summer, uh, I went home with PJ to, to visit his family and to sail. And for those of you who are, are sailors, you know that there, typically there's a, a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night race at the at Edgewater Yacht Club in Cleveland. It was Wednesday nights. You would go down, go out and sail a couple races and then come in and eat some dinner and have a beer with everyone and talk about how great the races were. So we went out on Wednesday night and we came in and uh, PJ introduced me to one of the other competitors, uh, a guy named Tom Mortimer. Uh, as, as you said in your introduction, Jojo, one, one of the giants of uh, neural engineering and r really just had tremendous impact on this field. So we started to talk to each other over our, our beer and clams after sailing, and uh, I told him what I was doing and what I was interested in, and he told me who he was. Of course, I didn't know anything about him at the time, and he invited me to come over this, the next day and visit his lab at Case Western. And so I took advantage of that opportunity. I went over there. I met him at the time. I also met Pat Crago, 
Uh, I met a guy named Jim Sweeney who was, was had just finished his PhD with Tom Mortimer and for me was kind of a young role model once I ended up there as a graduate student. Uh, and and we talked about the work that he was doing and I, I really fell in love with this idea of using electrical stimulation to restore function. The, the work that we were doing in Herb Voigt's lab was to understand how the brain processed sound. So he was interested in auditory neurophysiology, which was really interesting to me, but I knew at the time that I wanted to do something more applied. And the work that was going on at Case really resonated with me uh, tremendously. So again, just a, a very uh, serendipitous encounter, one that I happened to know PJ Schaefer, and then secondly, that he happened to introduce me to uh, Tom Mortimer, who then became my doctoral dissertation advisor. So who among you is the best sailor? Uh, PJ by far is, is the most accomplished sailor, and he largely now has turned it into a career. So he continues to do mechanical engineering, uh, building uh, parts for boats, but he mostly is a professional sailor. And I think that my, just to, just to finish out that story, Arun, the, I, I was not a particularly good student uh, when I went to college. When I was in high school, I would do my homework on the bus on the way to school or in the class before it was due. And I was able to kind of get through uh, and do okay. Those tricks didn't work so well when I got to college. And, and it took me a couple of years to really learn how to how to be a student. And so by the time I was ready to apply to graduate schools, my record, the, the, the trajectory of my record was, was good, but the starting point was not particularly good. And I, and I still to this day believe that uh, hadn't, if it had not been for that personal connection, I would, there's no chance I would have gotten admitted to case. I just didn't have the academic record to match up to the other people that were in the program. We thank our sponsors, Cortec. Please visit cortec-neuro.com for enabling tools for your neurophysiology research. So, Warren, just want to, I think that's that's a fantastic recollection of, of personalities and, and stories. And that is one thing that I personally do not know about Dr. Mortimer, um, who is an absolute giant in 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 biomedical engineering and neuromodulation. Um, so if can I just ask you to paint one more kind of another layer on the canvas here uh, of your experience? What was you were very much captivated by the fact that one could use electrical impulses to modulate nerves, which was very much the focus of what was being done in Dr. Mortimer's lab and also probably wider within Case Western at the time. But paint us a picture of what was happening outside in terms of applying electrical stimulation to treat diseases. Was it purely just the cardiac pacemakers that was around at the time? Was it something a bit more? And were you guys, did you feel like you were at the cusp of something that was going to explode versus something that was already there? So I think people need to appreciate that, that little bit of history uh, in terms of what was happening around the time back when you were just starting graduate school? Yeah, so I went to Case Western in the fall of 1989 and uh, at the time was largely ignorant of 
what was possible with electrical stimulation. What was occurring at the time, I didn't know it, but just so people are aware, is that things like spinal cord stimulation for chronic pain, they were out there in existence, but really kind of nascent. Uh, Cochlear implants were out there, still a little bit nascent. Uh, Sacral nerve stimulation out there, just nascent. So there were little, I would say it was maybe a low simmer. A a couple of things happened. One, locally, there was a a, a big transformation, which was the Department of Veterans Affairs awarded the FES Center of Excellence, which Hunter Peckham directed. And that occurred in fall 89 or early 1990. So right when I got there. And it was like, wow, I, I how, how lucky am I to be in this place right now as this kind yeah. of transformational investment is being made in the field. Yeah. And then the second thing was that uh, Tom Mortimer allowed me the privilege to attend with him the NIH Neural Prosthesis Workshop. And this was a collection of typically about 100 people we would meet on the NIH campus in a building that was run by the National Library of Medicine. And each of those, each of the investigators report on their progress during the prior year. Mm. And so the people that were there were people like Bill Agnew and Doug McCreary talking about safe stimulation, Blake Wilson talking about uh, transformative speech processors for cochlear implants, uh, Jerry Loeb and Joe Shulman talking about the early work on the Bion. Ken Wise and uh, David Anderson from Michigan talking about development and application of silicon probes. Uh, so I got immersed in this. Uh, and, and the other beautiful thing about this was we all ate breakfast and lunch together in the cafeteria of that building. And what that did was it kind of leveled the playing field for between second year graduate student and uh, distinguished professor, because we could both sit down with our plate of scrambled eggs and have a conversation just uh, as two people having breakfast. And it, it made it much easier to talk to these people and, and understand from them, how did they end up where they are? And so that was the milieu, if you will, Arun at the time, where there was lots of exciting activity going on. Uh, but it, but I would say that that neural stimulation was was still nascent. It really had not be, it had not grown to to the the state that it is today. Of course, yeah, it's it really is a fantastic time. Just walking, just listening to all the names and and all the people, and even talking about kind of the bare simple steps of what how do you define safety of electrical stimulation and silicon probes etc from michigan at the time and bion which is one of probably the landmark kind of devices in in neuromod etc in history um i think that must have been a fantastic time to cross fertilize would you then actually say warren that if what people did not tell you at the time was that the graduate school is is as much about talking to people and cross fertilization of ideas and understanding and reaching out to people that was never mentioned or or did people actually take an active interest in egging you on to talk to people or was it out of your own volition 
etc uh, that that you did that no i think one one person who really played a strong role in that respect arun uh, was hunter peckham who was a you know a, a mentor even even though my my primary mentor was tom mortimer hunter was always there uh, to use your words, egging me on, co- coaching me, and saying, and, and literally physically pushing me over towards someone <laughs> and telling me, "You need." And sometimes we need that because because I think young young kids, which which is what you were at the time, usually need that additional kind of layer of of psychological safety, which. I think no, knowing Dr. Peckham um, a bit, I think we, I can clearly see him doing that. Uh, but it's fantastic that that he kind of did that, and I'm sure you are not the only one that that he did that to as well. Um, so that's fantastic. Yeah, and he would he would make introductions to people, and then he would walk away so that he, so that you're left there and you you have to engage with them. He also gave me a very good piece of advice, uh, which was make sure that you stay late at the bar. <laughs> and continue to buy drinks for everyone, but don't drink too much yourself, because that's where you're really going to learn what's going on. Yeah, <laughs> I think I, that that's very definitely true, and and I've embraced that myself. But um, I I think I've seen across so many of these conversations um, with with thought leaders in in our field that there are so many stories of the personal connection that were critical in the future success of individuals. And I think now as you're a mentor, how, how do you make sure that you maintain that, that personal champion role or, or that, how do you continue that legacy of, of Hunter Peckham and, and your other advisors who, who forced you to engage at a personal level? Yeah, I think there are two two parts to that, Jojo. One is uh, laissez-faire, that is giving trainees, students, and, and postdocs the opportunity to have the freedom to discover their passion. And that's not a totally selfless act on my part. It's great for them, but it's also great for us, both us locally, our lab, and us, the field, to really take full advantage of their creativity and their passion. So if they can develop a project that is theirs, not Warren's project, but uh, JoJo's project, they're going to love that project. They're going to be passionate about it. This stuff is hard. It takes a lot of effort. And so they're going to really be enthusiastic and move that thing forward. So, so part of this is, is what I call kind of laissez-faire advising. And I benefited from that tremendously as a student. And I you know, try to practice that. But the other is making sure they're aware of the environment in which they're conducting that work and, and who are the people and what have those other people done. And one of the ways that we do that actively is we have a, a seminar series where we invite people in neural engineering to campus for two days. And what's a little bit different about this is that they have to give two talks while they're here, one of which is really teaching a class, not their traditional canned research lecture, but teach a class. And what I asked of them is I say, you have one class to teach. 
what you think the most important thing for your graduate students to know is to be successful. And then they uh, meet one-on-one -on -one and have lunch with, with students. And so students have an opportunity to talk you know, without other people present uh, with, with uh, these, these other individuals in the field. And then finally, they give their, um, their traditional research lecture. The other thing we do is, is when we're going to go to a meeting, make sure that we know who, sh who should they be talking to. So, you know, let's take John Gilbert, who's a, a graduate student of mine who works on spinal cord stimulation for treatment of chronic pain. So who should he make sure, who should we try to make sure he speaks with and gets to come over to his poster to understand what it is that he's working on? And then finally is our, our lab alumni network. And one of the things I love most about my job is that I get to keep in touch with people who were in the lab more than a decade ago and see their continued success. And that is tremendously rewarding and fun. And we try to, we try to get all get together every year at the Society for Neuroscience meeting. We have a dinner where we invite anyone who's ever been in the grill lab, come to dinner and uh, we typically get about 25 people there. And what's super fun about that is it allows current trainees to meet the trainees who were there 10 years ago and are now out in industry or as a consultant or as a professor and learn from them and hear about what was their path forward. So it kind of keep, keeps the family rolling. And I think that is, that is, a very unique thing and i honestly I, I i don't know how many folks actually do that and and probably do that in a much more active way that you've actually done warren because that is one thing that i've always kind of heard from speaking to your mentees or or past uh, alumni of your lab um a few of them is that they hold that relationship with you and as well as with the fellow lab members very, very sacred, and they are always looking forward to to share that information, right? I think I think that is that help and eager to always help and share experiences, share knowledge, which I think is is something that is a culture, as you probably just said, that that you have fostered over the years. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Warren. Um, that that's fantastic. Um, I, I think just one extra layer here is you've talked about how you um, maintain and, and um, foster the relationships from current lab members all the way dating as back as far back as anybody willing to come to dinner or who happens to be at SFN. How do you attract talent in, in the first place to your lab? What is there any unique um, campaign that you wage or or do they just kind of fall from the sky and say we want to work with you occasionally someone will fall from the sky but that's that's pretty unusual i, I think that um you know, we, we have a benefit of being at duke university which tends to attract people it's a it's a certainly a national name and a growing international name so that attracts uh people uh but i think our most important asset 
are the people that are here now. So when a perspective, I'll use a graduate, perspective graduate student as an example, uh, when they come to visit campus, so we have on-campus interviews that we'll do in the spring, uh, they'll meet with me, but more importantly, they'll meet with the other students and staff in my lab. And I tell them, I say, you know, don't, don't listen to what I'm telling you. I'm the, I'm the salesperson here. Go talk to the other students in the lab about the experience that they're having here and what it's like to be part of our organization. And then decide whether or not this is something that you think is something that you want to be part of. And uh, fortunately, that seems to work pretty well. Uh, I think that the students have built, uh, we have built a, a, a tremendous culture and they're enthusiastic about that culture. And that comes across when they talk to prospective students or prospective postdocs. Yeah. So they're our greatest, really greatest asset to recruiting. I also want to pick on something else that you mentioned at the beginning of our chat here, Warren, which is the fact that being from New Jersey, you wanted to go and work for J&J. Um, and given that you moved from where you were at BU over to CASE, which is really the hub of neurotechnology and functional electrical stimulation, it's the place to be when back then and, and even today in terms of how much heritage, how much history there is and, and, and all the things that they do. Um, why did you ever flirt with the possibility uh, at the time after finishing your graduate school and probably when you were just thinking about kind of taking a job? Did you flirt with the idea of actually thinking, hmm, maybe industry is an option or did you actually become and when did you decide to be an academic? As I said, I think that seed was planted during that summer experience in Herb Voigt's lab and, and the, the attributes of this career were just reinforced by my experience as a graduate student at Case Western. And so it never, it never even really crossed my consciousness after that, Arun, to think about a industrial career. I really was focused on an academic career. And as I said, Jim Sweeney had, had finished his PhD maybe a year, year and a half before I arrived at Case Western, and he was continuing some research there. So he had a postdoc position. He was wrapping some things up. And I remember that when he, he was applying for academic jobs at the time, this probably was uh, early 1990, and I remember that he had at least two, maybe three offers for faculty positions. And so I said, okay, what did this guy do? <laughs> because that's, that's the position I want to be in. And so he probably didn't even know it at the time because then he went off and, and took a job at Arizona State University. Uh, but, but he was a, was a kind of role model for me because he had accomplished what I was seeking to accomplish uh, in, in graduate school. Yeah. Watch and learn, right? But you did watch and learn from the success of your peers there. Did you watch and learn or what did you do when you saw failures around you? I'm not talking about experimental failures. I'm talking about failures beyond just the academic realm. Were there any things that basically said, oh, this is something that I shouldn't be doing. If I am to be successful, this doesn't suit me. Um, and therefore I'm going to stay on my path and this is going to be my style. So how did you develop the Warren style of operation? 
Um, I, I think there, there are two parts of that, Arun, maybe. Uh, you know, one is I think people that weren't as happy were people who weren't passionate about what they were doing. So it, it wasn't that, you know, I, I wouldn't characterize it as, as failure. There just wasn't a good match between what they wanted to do or where their skill set was and what it is that they were doing. And uh, fortunately, I, I mean, I think it's, it's unfortunate when you end up in that situation, but fortunately those individuals largely went in a different direction, right? They said, okay, this isn't for me. I'm going to, I'm going to take attack and, and go off and do something else. And that's influenced a lot. Uh, yeah. It comes back to, to Jojo's question that that's influenced a lot. How I go about recruiting people. Right. So we get lots of applicants with a with a 3.9 GPA and perfect GRE scores, and they've already have a, a first author publication as an undergraduate. So so what is going to distinguish those people? And I call it fire in the belly. You know, convince me that this is really what you're passionate about, because if you're passionate about it, then you're, I think you're much more likely to be successful and happy. Yeah. The other piece is a little more concrete, and and it was something that was instilled in me, I think, very strongly by Tom Mortimer, which is you should be able to explain everything with very simple fundamental principles. And, right, you you should kind of come back to, you know, Ohm's law or Kirchhoff's current law, uh, and and you should be able to explain to me how this system is working Otherwise, you really don't understand what you're doing. Yeah. And that turns out to be very fortunate because I only know maybe five or six things. And so I kind of use those five or six things to explain everything. And uh, if, if you can break it down to, to that, that fundamental level, then, you're, then it's really clear that you can understand it and you can explain it to someone else. Yeah, I, th- I think that just reminds me of of a classic saying in from where I come from that knowledge, if it's not shared, is useless tinsel. And the next thing is, if it is not communicated in a manner that is understood, um, if it's not communicated in a simple manner that enables understanding, then there is no point in that knowledge. I think I think that is the best summation of of what you have shared there, Warren. And I know that your teaching is legendary. Uh, I've had multiple interactions from you. And I think I'm going to kind of, if I if I may, Warren, I think there are some aspects of, of, of neurophysiology and aspects of how um, nerve stimulation works that you explain that I've not seen anybody explain the way you do it in, in very simple terms. So why don't you maybe pick a, a classic kind of theory of some sort and just explain it the way such that a non-scientist could really understand. Hello everyone, this is Arun here. I hope all of you have really enjoyed the conversation with Professor Warren Grill. I hope you have enjoyed Warren describing his journey from where he started to where he is currently now. But to hear Warren explain the theory in very simple terms that all of you can listen and enjoy and understand, you will have to do that in part two of the podcast. Don't go anywhere. 
In addition to this, Warren is going to share stories of his innovations from his laboratory. And more importantly, we're going to come back to his dream of owning a BMW. This is Scraps. Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dad. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. Our main sponsor is Cortec. You can find their information at cortec-neuro.com. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Okay.